We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week. All great romances are love-hate. As the Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor of geopolitics, Iran and America have always danced a dance of angry fascination with each other. Now, as the Middle East burns, their kismet is truly aflame. With an overstretched Joe Biden about to call in the airstrikes, we're in the foxhole, figuring out if they're actually going to go all the way this time, or if this is just one more round of heavy petting. Ever since a British general let slip the prospect of reintroducing conscription, the British media has been convulsed by a debate over the most trivial aspects of the question. Whether we still have the blitz spirit, whether Gen Z are too fat, which ethnicities would be prepared to fight for the multiculti regime? There is, however, a bigger picture. Something to do with war in Europe? This is the week that the FT handed their old enemy, Viktor Orban, a lifetime supply of PR gotchas. In fact, the plot to blow up the Hungarian economy might be the funniest special ops disaster since the Bay of Pigs. Hatched in Brussels, this bomb had no trigger, no fuse, no gunpowder. In short, it conforms strictly to EU regulation. But first... From America with love... Earlier this week, a few days ago, Washington announced that Iran-backed militants had killed three American soldiers at a base. Presumably these are one of the proxy armies that Iran has in the region. Presumably they were also using Iranian-made weapons. I think it was probably a drone. And this has led to the US floating the possibility of retaliatory action. Now, we had Malcolm Cheyune on the show a few weeks ago, and he said he thought that there were probably already soldiers killed, or at least very severely injured, and that the US Army was putting a brave face on it. We don't know that for sure, but it it doesn't seem highly unlikely. So clearly, whether the news reporting is correct or whether there have already been casualties, either way, the Washington have clearly said that enough is enough. Now, there have been people calling to do something for some time, Um, But it's the usual suspects, John Bolton, Lindsey Graham, and so on. I I don't know how how people take any of these guys seriously. All they do is shout war, war, war anytime they get a chance. But for some reason, they occasionally have influence, I guess. Um, But this feels like it it goes a little further. Um, Republican Senator Tom Cotton, he's also a bit of a hawk, it must be said, said, quote, he left our troops, he being Biden, as sitting ducks. The only answer to these attacks must be devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces, both in Iran and across the Middle East. So what is Joe Biden going to do? Well, they haven't announced anything yet. I assume they're not going to announce anything. I think the next that we'll hear from this is strikes. And and we'll know where the strikes hit when they hit. I think that's pretty much how this is going to play out. But there was some reports, I think it was Politico, that Biden was considering hitting uh, Iranian proxies in the region, which I I don't think will be too much of an escalation, but also that they might hit Iranian naval assets in the Persian Gulf. Now, that would, I think, be a, a pretty serious escalation, and that will probably end up dragging the US into some sort of a war or conflict with Iran. And I think that's broadly 
understood. Uh, I think people are now kind of coming to the idea that there might be a, a war with Iran. I don't think we can talk about it further. I don't think it'll be land war, but a, a limited war perhaps. Um, the speculation is that the naval assets that might be targeted are the ones that are currently hanging around the Red Sea, watching, watching all the Houthi attacks, presumably gathering data on those Houthi attacks. And I think there have been some accusations on the part of American lawmakers that these um, Iranian vessels are actually directing the Houthi attacks, which frankly is perfectly possible. Just really quickly before we discuss the broader issue, I think this is becoming a wedge issue on the right. Tucker Carlson, who most people probably know, ex-Fox News host, was the biggest TV host in America until he got axed from Fox News, continues to have quite an influence on Twitter. He just put out a tweet saying effing lunatics in response to calls for war with Iran. I think the, the reaction when it comes on the left is going to be even more severe. I think there are a lot on the right who see another Middle Eastern war as crazy, frankly, and they might not even have a sense of perhaps what we'll talk about, how how dangerous such a war could be, just in terms of the potential to lose it. But on the left, I think this will be probably seen, interpreted through the lens of the Gaza war, and Iran will be effectively seen, I think, by the parts of the left that support the Palestinians as enabling proxy attacks in support of the Palestinians. And therefore, Iran will come to be viewed as being associated with the Palestinians, and therefore this will be this will be interpreted in that way. So um, I think the way to summarize that is, if this happens, uh, we're going into a hugely controversial war, much more dangerous war than the US has seen in the Middle East. We're starting off tired, I would say, and it'll be insanely dangerous. The final thing I'd say on the kind of introductory front, if Biden does not do something big now, but he will look he will look quite silly because he's he's indicated that they will do something big. So if they continue to just strike assets in the region and so on, I think it'll I think it'll fall it'll fall it'll fall like a, a dead tree or something like that. It won't be very impressive. And even if he does that at this stage, there's sort of an expectation now baked in that at some point something a bit bigger is going to happen. First of all, I would say, uh, before we start, it's my understanding that this base is actually in Syria, not Jordan. It's, it's it's kind of right on the border with Jordan, but it's in Syria. I might be wrong about that because all of the press coverage has said Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. But it's my understanding that the area that was actually struck was in Syria. And this is an important distinction to make because uh, United States uh, military forces are in Jordan by invitation of the sovereign government. They are not in Syria. And that's an important uh, distinction to make when it comes to international law. The problem is, though, that because everybody's saying Jordan, I can't be certain that's in Syria, but I think it is. The second point is that let's really look at the options that the Americans have here. Um, The first thing that they could do is they could respond in a very proportional way. And that proportional way would be to use their intelligence, either human or electronic, of various types to strike back at uh, the place or the group or the individuals who actually perpetrated this attack or maybe strike more widely it would be less proportional but it would still be a kind of proportional response to strike more widely at in inverted commas iranian-backed militias within the region who you know who knows who actually backs some of these groups whether it's all iran whether it's partially iran whether it's not iran but they're connected somehow so 
but that's the first option to strike proportionally at the sort of either the individual group that uh, hit this American base, uh, tried to kill a lot of people and be able to present that kind of eye for an eye to the American people, or more widely at Iranian-backed militias in the region, in Syria and in Iraq, most likely. The second option, as you say, is to attack uh, Iranian assets directly. And when we say Iranian uh, assets, I, I, I mean specific kind of things, either kind of installations, individuals. The, the U.S. have assassinated uh, senior Iranian uh, officials in the past, most famously Soleimani in Iraq, or actual, as you alluded to earlier, naval assets, boats, ships, ports, that sort of thing, that aren't actually in Iraq. That would be extremely escalatory, and one would have imagined that the Iraqis then would, uh, sorry, the Iranians then would um, strike back somehow. The third option is to attack Iran directly, and that means um, you know attacking things within the country of Iran, and that would undoubtedly be at this stage military. Uh, bases or military installations of some sort and really att uh, you know attempt in the words of kind of you know London Washington security kind of public relations speak send a message that this is unacceptable and things will escalate farther which one of these options will the US choose so far I have to say that whatever the reasoning the US has acted in quite a restrained manner during this war. I think even their, their surging of naval assets into the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean um, after the uh, attacks on Israel from Gaza on October the 7th in support, uh, in quotation marks, of the Israeli response to that, even that was an effort not to escalate, not to prepare for attack, but to de-escalate to show that any further escalation would be met with um, immense uh, or, or, or could anyway be met with a serious amount of military power. Uh, and I think everything that they've done since, I mean, certainly the previous drone attacks of which there have been scores and scores, maybe hundreds at this stage, because we had, as you said, we had Malcolm Cheyune, um, the uh, essayist and uh, political commentator, on several weeks ago now and i think at the time he said there had been something like 30 or 40 attacks so one would assume that there would have been even more since then and it's just this one by accident or design or inevitability has has, has, has killed people and so far the u.s have acted in an extraordinarily restrained way we can argue about the reasons for that it could be because you know, as the U.S. understand, you know, the U.S. has discovered realism as a as a policy framework for international relations, and it understands that it's got the Ukraine uh, war by proxy uh, currently underway. It has an upcoming conflict with China, and it simply can't afford to get bogged down in a Middle Eastern war. So it's discovered realism and has decided to act in a very restrained way, as you said, kind of. You know, just bite the bullet and accept a few punches on the nose uh, and not respond because it doesn't want to get involved. It could be that. It could be political because, you know, we're in an election year and the Biden administration understands 
that getting involved in the Middle East would be hugely unpopular with the American people because, you know, the Iraq war used up so much political capital for interventionist foreign policy, especially in the Middle East, that they don't want to get involved for that reason. So it could be domestic political, it could be that they're taking a more real, realist view to international affairs, or it could just be, you know, they would love to, but they don't necessarily have the means to expend a whole bunch of munitions going to war with with, with a, a, a whole plethora, smorgasbord of uh, armed militias across the Middle East and potentially Iran and potentially Syria and potentially Hezbollah, and at the same time be able to continue supporting Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan. But, but whichever one of those three reasons or whichever combination of those three reasons uh, it is, the fact remains that the US has been very restrained so far. Uh, and I think that's something to feel relieved about. And in fact, I, I, I would go so far as to say that other actors within the region have been restrained. Syria hasn't responded to quite serious Israeli attacks on, on, on Syrian territory. The Iranians directly, we can't say any of their, their proxy forces or, or, or forces that they have supported in the past or perhaps currently support, they have been fairly restrained in the way that they've responded to this. It seems to me anyway that most of the actors involved in this want to avoid a major regional war. They want to avoid the U.S. getting sucked in. The U.S. wants to avoid sucking in Iran. So my guess, if I had to guess, I would guess that the U.S. would respond in a way that is more proportional than striking Iranian naval assets than striking Iran directly. But it'll try and do so with quite a bang. It'll try and go after like a lot of these militia groups all at the same time and launch a whole bunch of missiles and drop a whole bunch of Paveway 4 bombs and fly a whole bunch of sorties and really show, wow, that's a, like a huge response, even if it's not the sort of thing that, you know, absolute kind of swivel-headed warmongers like Lindsey Graham want. I'm not sure that solves anything, and uh, but ultimately it would kind of keep things under control. My feeling is that the US wants to keep out of this as much as possible, but... Yeah, it's becoming increasingly difficult. Like, it, it, you know, every step that this takes, key parties want to stay out of this, but you can feel them getting kind of funneled down into this point where they can't help it. it, it it's really getting increasingly dangerous. I mean, I'm hoping that we'll kind of know probably at the time that the podcast comes out what's happened. If not, probably be early the, uh, next week. Yeah, we just, I think we'd highlight if it's even a huge strike and none of them hit Iran or any Iranian, major Iranian assets like ships or anything like that. It's not, I mean, it is an escalation, of course, and Iran will probably respond and everything like, or Iran's proxies will respond. But yeah, that 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 probably wouldn't get us to the next level, to, to war. Something like a hit on the naval assets or something probably will. So it's probably worth watching out for that. We can also add in there that the Israelis are making a lot of noise that they are preparing for a general war with Hezbollah in the north of Israel, in the south of Lebanon. This really is probably turning into a regional war. Whether that war will involve a direct conflict with the United States and Iran remains to be determined. I think you think that it's less likely. I would have agreed with you, but I'm beginning to think it's more likely. I'd be surprised if the White House is leaking stuff about potential naval assets hit and then not following through on that, it would make them look 
week in DC, but we'll see. It could have been somebody more aggressive within the administration leaked that to try and try and control the narrative a bit. We can just talk briefly about some Iranian capacities. We can't go into all of it. Iran is an interesting place. They've built out a very unique military, complete with like crazy speedboats and a container ship converted into a makeshift aircraft carrier. It's all very interesting. But I think their most intra- their, their most important military asset is, of course, their ballistic and cruise missile stockpile. I think we've discussed it on the show before, but they've got significant missile capabilities. Um, it's all conventional for now. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but these are the real deal. Um, I think Malcolm's talked about it on the show before. Maybe we have a few. You, their, their missiles go from anywhere. The range is anywhere from 300 kilometers to 200, 2,000 kilometers. And 300 kilometers is pretty good to hit most things in the immediate region. And then moving out 2,000 kilometers can hit, well, it can hit Greece, actually. Um, it can hit, hit Cyprus. So it can hit into the Mediterranean. Now, of course, they're not going to hit Greece or Cyprus. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying the entire area is covered. I'd be surprised if a US aircraft carrier or whatever can launch that far out. Uh, 2,000 kilometers. They've got other ones that are 1,300 kilometers that seem to cover the Persian Gulf. So if you're in the Persian Gulf, you're within firing distance of them. In terms of their actual capacity, these things are absolutely enormous. Just for context, a conventional warhead on a Tomahawk missile, which is the standard American cruise missile, is 450 kilograms. Almost all of Iran's missile stockpile have at least 450 kilograms, except maybe there's one called the Fatah 313 that is 350 kilograms. But they really, they go up to double that. They go up to 900, 1,000 kilograms. These are absolutely enormous uh, warheads. And when you start looking at the amount of them they have, you know, times the payload, you start to realize, in a sense, they don't need nuclear weapons. You can, you can just launch an awful lot of these things. They are very, very, very large. Um, and then the last thing to say about their capabilities is that since about September or October of last year, there's been a lot of noise that Iran will soon have nuclear weapons. Very soon. They may already have them. And the reason for this is that Iran, as far as I understand it, basically got right up to the edge of building nuclear weapons and then held back because of the, the deals that have been made or the potential deals that were going to be made by the West. But it looks increasingly like the plan was when, start, when stuff starts really heating up in the Middle East, relations break down, which they have, then Iran is, is unconstrained. The, America can't threaten them with a bombing campaign because they're already preparing for them to bomb them. So there's nothing to lose. And so Iran may actually develop nuclear weapons in the very near future. And so the next thing really to watch out for will be a nuclear weapons test in Iran. And if that happens, um, the whole game changes, really. But even if that doesn't happen, if the US gets involved in this, it will be putting its military at risk in a way that it has not in living memory. I would say even probably going back to the Vietnam War, yes, a lot of American soldiers died in the Vietnam War, but it was effectively a guerrilla war, and the Viet Cong never really threatened the American military per se, I think we'd be back in kind of North Korea, the Korean War territory here, where the adversary really does have weapons, maybe not quite as good, but on par with the Americans and so on here. 
Um, and I would just say very briefly from having to talk to quite a few people who are interested in these things and people in politics and people who, who are usually quite well informed, this is not widely understood. Um, I think people still think that Iran is some sort of backward country like Iraq in 2003. And that hasn't been true for a very, very long time. They have a serious military and they have a serious arsenal. And what scares me is that the American politicians, I'm sure people in the Pentagon understand what we understand because they read the same things we do and they probably have access to information we don't, but that the politicians and so on are seeing this as another sand war, another desert war against an ailing power with an authoritarian structure in a dysfunctional society. Iran may be authoritarian, it may be, have a dysfunctional society, I don't know. Maybe it's quite poor, fine, but it has a sophisticated military. So this could actually get quite scary. Yeah, I think we can be even more basic than that about the dangers of trying to take on Iran uh, and the uh, really irrelevant uh, or, or the scale of the irrelevancy of the comparison with the Iraq war, certainly the 1991 Iraq war. How would U.S. forces get close to Iraq? Uh, sorry, Iran. Um when they invaded Iraq, they were able to use Saudi, Kuwaiti, and and Turkish bases. Are any of those countries going to allow their land to be used against Iran in what will be seen as a kind of support for, you know, as the Arab world sees it, and not necessarily as I see it or as this podcast sees it, but as the Arab world sees it, it would be these countries allowing themselves to be used in support of Israel's campaign of genocide or ethnic cleansing against the Gazans. Again, that's you, you know not how we see it necessarily, but as they would see it. I think that it's important to realize that you know the an F an F-18 from an aircraft carrier doesn't have that big a range. They would have to move into Iranian into their Iranian air defense bubble to be able to get close. And okay, if they launch a few cruise missiles into Iran, fine, maybe they can do that without taking an immediate hit back. But what then? What then? You've just kind of, you know, you've, you've essentially called for an escalation. It, an invasion of Iran would be a disaster. And not only that, it would be a fait accompli in terms of, it would create a fait accompli for Taiwan because the U.S., after Ukraine, if, if it also got into a major shooting war with Iran, it simply would not have the resources, probably not political resources, frankly, but even assuming that it did, it almost certainly wouldn't have the military resources to provide to Taiwan with the kind of military support that it would need to fend off any kind of Chinese invasion. Given that the Ukraine war is going badly... And given the difficulty of attacking and, and, and fully subduing Iran, and given the fact that it would provide the Chinese a kind of once-in-a-century kind of opening, essentially, because Taiwan would be left naked given all of the military, um, all of the military kind of treasure, essentially, that the U.S. would have expended on Iran and Ukraine, it might, in fact, lead to the U.S facing simultaneous defeat across three theaters around the world and the three most important theaters for U.S. strategy, i.e. the most important theater being uh, the Western Pacific, 
the second most important theatre being uh, the eastern approaches of Europe and the third most important theatre being the Middle East. They could, in theory, face defeat of that. I actually saw Patrick Porter offer an interesting alternative, uh, uh, an interesting way that the US might get out of this. It might be able to disentangle itself. Uh, Patrick Porter is the uh, professor of international security at Birmingham University in the UK. He is a realist in terms of his foreign policy framework, one of the very few in British academia. And Patrick Porter suggested uh, following Ronald Reagan's model from 1983 and the way that he dealt or the way that he responded to the bombing of the US embassy in Beirut, which killed around 250 US Marines. It was an enormous bomb and it killed around 250 US Marines. Uh, at the time, it was really a shock to the US uh, government. Eventually, eventually, Reagan simply withdrew from the Lebanon. He had put a, a, a thousand or so US Marines into the Lebanon as part of their efforts to deal with the Lebanese civil war. I, I, I believe he put them in in 1982. Um they were victim of this this huge and terrible bomb which killed 250-odd of them in 1983. And eventually, at the end of that year, he simply withdrew them. He did retaliate, but then he withdrew them. And I wonder, I wonder, we see how vulnerable all these small U.S. bases are all around the Middle East. The Middle East has dropped in terms of its importance to the U.S. strategic position uh, basically because the U.S. has started producing more of its own oil, unlike the 1970s when the Carter Doctrine first came into effect. So maybe we'll see U.S. retaliation, we'll see continued efforts against the Houthis, but quietly, quietly and slowly, we actually might see the U.S. withdrawing from all of these small bases around the Middle East. It might keep a few kind of naval bases in places like Bahrain, but in general... Uh, we might see the U.S. ultimately withdraw. Whether that's going to be possible in an election year, but I'm damn sure that next year it's very much possible. And there might even be word goes out through back channels to the Iranians that, look, you know, we are going to strike back against some targets, but we are going to withdraw in a year or so as long as you kind of don't escalate too far, as long as you don't, don't draw us in. So I think that's something for listeners to look out for. Your country needs them. The UK press, and especially the Daily Telegraph, which is the right-of-centre broadsheet newspaper in the UK, very much aligned to the Conservative Party, has been banging the war drums in the last week or so. Every single day, they've had new stories based around the idea that the United Kingdom might need to reintroduce national service or... For our American listeners, the draft, conscription. It all started with a speech by Grant Shapps, the defense minister. His very first um, his very first speech as a minister for defense in Britain, in which he said that Britain was uh, in a pre-war state. It, you know, it was kind of five years or so away from a potential war against Russia, China, uh, and Iran all at the same time. And we had better start thinking about how to prepare for that. That was swiftly followed by a an interview, I believe, or, or maybe it was a speech, I forget now, but 
um, quotes from the the head of the army, the most senior officer in the British army, who said that um, the British army was far too small to fight any kind of war against Russia. Uh, we should start seriously thinking about war with Russia because Russia would, you know, because of uh, Europe's largely undefended state, because of years, decades even, of underinvestment in, the, in, in Europe's armed forces, in the armed forces of individual European nations, and because of all of the munitions that they've sent to Ukraine and have since been destroyed or, 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 or still in Ukraine's hands rather than in the hands of the individual militaries that sent them. And because of the fact that Donald Trump might be elected and either withdraw the US from NATO or, or, or at least draw down US involvement in the European theatre, European countries had better be ready. And because Britain had such a small army, we might well need a citizen army. And the whole country should focus on what a war with Russia would mean for them and how they could contribute. This has caused these two speeches coming one after the other, has caused a kind of a social media frenzy and a great deal of speculation uh, in the press, both in the left-wing press and the, 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 the kind of the liberal left press, places like The Guardian and The Independent, but also, as I say, in The Telegraph, the kind of the right-of-center broadsheet, which every single day since these two speeches has had different articles, different special features about how Britain might look in war. It's had lots of opinion columns about how we could deal with this. So Britain wants to go toward a war footing. We spoke about this to a certain degree last week, and completely absent among all of this was, uh, you know, any kind of plan whatsoever. Uh, you know, this is something that would take an all-of-government, an all-of-government, uh, all-of-state, really, effort. Industrial policy, training skills, uh, finances, all of the rest of it. And then we also have Australia, the other great Anglo-Saxon uh, nation across the uh, ocean, also saying that it might need conscription to fight Russia, quite how the Russians are going to make their way all the way out to the outback. I have no idea, but the Australians seem pretty frightened about it, and they too believe that they might need to introduce conscription or the draft uh, to fight Russia. I mean, I assume they mean to fight a kind of a world war in which... Um, in which China is also involved. They don't just mean Russia. Um, but it seems all over the world at the moment, the war drums are beating for not just a kind of small-scale con conflict in on Europe's eastern approaches where we fight by proxy or, or even a limited uh, affair, but a full world war. What's happening here? Well, I think what's happening here, and and you can maybe contribute, I think what's happening here is that... The European nations, rather than engaging in diplomacy, now people might say that you can't engage in diplomacy with Russia, they're untrustworthy, or it, it's not right, there's nothing to, to discuss, Russia's plainly in the wrong here. Okay, maybe. Whatever reason, though, instead of engaging in diplomacy, they, they put all of their weight, or all the weight they could politically get away with behind Ukraine. They sent a, a, a large amount of munitions they imposed the harshest sanctions, the harshest sanctions uh, that have ever been imposed on an individual country. Um, and they also put a huge amount of credibility on the line. At various stages, uh, various leaders of individual Western nations, the US, Britain, France, Germany, and even 
you know, the leader of NATO itself, all said that NATO's credibility is on the line. It's a battle for for democracy and liberty. You, you know, Putin would have to go. All of these things, they, they, they put a huge amount of credibility on the line. What's happened now? The Ukrainian counterattack failed. Whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, doesn't matter. It failed. Russia's now gaining territory. It has the upper hand strategically. And at the same time, Russia's economy is growing faster than any Western European nation. The IMF just today, I believe, have upgraded their forecast for the Russian economy to grow something like 2.3% this year, which is larger than Britain and France, and with a smaller fiscal deficit, by the way. So the Russians aren't you know, spending as much in relation to the size of their economy as, say, Britain or France or the US is, but they're growing faster than Britain and France. So the Europeans realized that they, they could be facing a strategic defeat here, maybe not an all-out defeat where Ukraine completely collapses, but a, a strategic defeat at the same time as they're facing Donald Trump having just won two major primaries in Iowa and New Hampshire, smashing all of his opponents, winning Iowa by a record, smashing Nikki Haley in New Hampshire where she'd pinned all of her hopes and put phenomenal amounts of money in. And now they're frightened that the U.S., might withdraw from Europe. So you've got them facing strategic defeat against the R Russia, who they've antagonized, who they've attempted to foment regime change, who they've imposed huge sanctions in an effort to send their whole country uh, or to immiserate their people, or they've sent weapons and provided intelligence to kill Russian soldiers. And they might be facing this without America. And I think they're starting to get seriously concerned. And that's why we're hearing these panic stories about conscription. But after that kind of very long introduction, Philip Pilkington, I'm sorry it took so long. What do you think? I think uh, the Australians will definitely need to be on the lookout for uh, the Russians dressing up in kangaroo suits and parachuting in uh, soldiers. That could be a real national security threat. I mean, it's, it's worth thinking about. Um, apart from that, uh, yeah, I just can't really take the whole thing seriously the more I hear about it. Um, for context, Sky News, this is from two days ago, because this just keeps going. We get conscription stories now regularly. A former British, armor, former British Army Colonel Tim Collins, who is a parliamentary candidate for the Ulster Unionist Party, who, um, I mean, not to, to find a point on it, usually aren't really listened to by the press that much, is telling us, uh, I think we need to have to, what we have to do is wake up and realize that Ukrainians are fighting for their liberty through the illegal invasion for, from Russia. And if they do not win, we are next. As in Britain's next? I think there's a little bit of land and sea between us and Ukraine. Um, so I just, I don't know what that means. It's, it's even if that was the intention of the Russians, like... That's, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I think you're probably right in terms of the way that you're interpreting it. And when you say that you're hearing war drums all over the world, when it comes to this specific issue, I wouldn't go that far. I'd say in the um, Anglo-Saxon countries, um, in the uh, in the, ex um, the Commonwealth, effectively, well, not well, America. Well, just to interrupt you there, Philip Pilkington, there was also uh, in the German press, I think last week, uh, or it might have even been this week now, um, there was a big story in one of the German newspapers, I think Bild maybe, of a, a kind of a war game scenario, uh, which involved a Russia-Germany going to war with uh, Russia. Uh, and, and, and the German Ministry of Defense had war gamed the whole thing out, and it, and, and it was given quite extensive coverage in the German press. And, and they said that there was something like a kind of a five-year 
window while this might happen. So this is the sort of thing that's happening elsewhere in the world as well. Well, actually, I think the Germans floated the idea of conscript or allowing foreign nationals into their military. So they didn't say conscription. They said foreign nationals in the military. The wisdom of which is questionable in and of itself. It all looks very unserious to me. I have to say it, it looks really silly, to be honest. Polling, good polling has come out. And I think now we can get the vibes around this as well. And they're worth talking about. The polling is absolutely dismal. And when asked, when British people were asked, if a new world war broke out, which of the following would you do? I would volunteer for military service, 7% of 18 to 40 year olds. <laughs> Um, I would not volunteer, but I would serve if called up 21%. So they've got 28% relatively willing to fight. I would not volunteer and refuse to serve if called up 38%. So 38, nearly 40% of people who are young enough to fight would say, no, I'm not fighting. And then they have an not applicable, I don't believe the armed forces would want me to serve due to age or disability. This is for 18 to 40-year-olds, and it's 17%. I do not believe 17% of 18 to 40-year-old British people have age or disability carve-outs for the military. So what I'm actually getting from it is 38% of people will take to the hills, and 17% on top of that will pretend to be ill. So you're looking at about 55%, and then you've got 17% in don't know, who probably won't, probably will run away as well. So it's not very popular. I think we can we can say that. When you kind of parse the, the media reporting on it, um, I think there's skepticism on both the right and the left. The response um, to this from the political right has really been, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, and by the way, I mean by this, the actual political right, not kind of conservative talking heads who are really pro all this sort of thing. And the, the real response has actually been, um, why would I? The, I the, the country can't even control its own borders from immigration. I don't like the government. I don't trust the Tories. I don't feel re represented in Parliament. Why would I fight? That's been the response to a very large extent. And then on the left, it's been, well, it's been relatively what you'd expect. It's been, I don't want to fight in a war. Uh, we don't really like war. Zoe Williams, who's a big columnist at The uh, Guardian, said, quote, Yet one thing remains constant, there will always be a cohort of men in late middle age whose enduring thrill is to imagine other people's kids dying and dress that up as their own patri patriotism. I'm happy to talk about the rights and wrongs of a modern land war any time with one proviso, nobody joined before Boris Johnson, okay? End quote. And she's referring to a very silly video that Boris Johnson, who's becoming increasingly unlikable, I have to say, put out recently where he... um. He started doing some sort of a war recruitment video and then he insulted his listeners at the end and said that they were all fat and eating too much KFC and if they stopped being fat, then they could join the army. This is presumably part of Boris Johnson's almost religious conversion to going for a jog. So the whole thing looks deeply, deeply unserious. Um, and the one thing I'd, I'd finally say is, although I think it's deeply unserious, I think you probably have that impression too, a lot of people read newspapers and they take what they read seriously. And frankly, Britain is, for better or for worse, a country with an awful lot of foreign people here, and an awful lot, myself included, and an awful lot of people who, who don't have to be here, who can be working in America, who can be working in Europe, 
who can be working anywhere really because they're quite well educated. And this sort of thing, if you see it day in, day out in the newspaper, I can only imagine that you say, do I really want to live here? Do I want to live in a country that's telling me, while, while most other countries in the world aren't telling me this, that I'm going to be pressed into an army and go and die in a trench for something that I can't really define? I mean, there's a kind of a comic element to it if you want to watch Boris Johnson tell you that you eat too much KFC and you're fat. Um, while he goes out for his morning jog. And then there's a not-so-comic element, which is, this is a country with a struggling economy anyway. It puts an awful lot of uh, effort into attracting foreign talent and maintaining domestic talent and stuff like this. I mean, at at worst, it scares the pants out of people and makes them not want to be here. And at best, it kind of makes the country look silly, which also kind of makes you not want to be here. I want to say something about that. Last week we spoke about the the entire absence of a plan when it came to this uh, subject. I mean, you know, as I said before, you know, this would need a full industrial policy, which would be an, an enormously complicated thing. It would encompass things like state aid, skills and training, uh, the allocation of capital. It might even involve tariffs and using the government's balance sheet to help and, and and subsidize and foster these companies. It would also need, you know, a lot of logistical planning. It would need a vast expansion of the army's capacity. I mean, gone, gone are the days where the army could accept 200,000 teenagers at Aldershot every single year. That's gone, okay? Um, so, it, you know, it would need such a massive expansion of the, of the state and the state capacity for planning We'd need to figure out what kind of munitions we need, what we could build ourselves, what needed to be imported. We've just shut down our last major steel plant. I mean, how can you build you know, ships and tanks if you don't have steel? Are we going to buy steel from abroad? And, and, and what are the chances we can get more of that? It's ridiculous to go on like this without a plan. Does that mean that the UK government isn't serious? No, it doesn't. We've seen consistently over the last 10 or 15 years that the government does all sorts of foolish things that it hasn't planned for. For instance, leaving the European Union, it didn't really have a proper plan for that, but it did it, okay? Uh, whatever you think about that, the rights and the wrongs, uh, it hadn't planned. It, it, it dealt with that very, very poorly. So might they do something as foolish as this without proper planning? Yeah, maybe they would. One thing I would say, though, is that it, you know it's also entirely possible that facing some kind of strategic defeat to Russia on Europe's eastern approaches. What they might be trying to do is conflate an ongoing low-simmering conflict with Russia with defending the nation, okay? And I think in that sense, all of this conscription drumbeat has been quite successful because, in fact, what they've done is they've said, well, you might be needed to defend your country. You might need to join up to be conscripted, to be drafted, to be part of a citizen's army, to do your national service, if Russia invades, okay? Well, what that's done is it's shifted the conversation onto whether you would be conscripted or not, whether you think national service is a good thing or not, whether you're a patriot or not, okay? And it's shifted away from the wisdom of an ongoing simmering conflict with Russia. That bodes very ill for the future of Europe because one would hope that after the Ukraine war finished, after some sort of settlement was reached, slowly but surely, Russo-European relations could be normalized. But it appears to me that this is a signal that they're not going to be. 
and that if Ukraine is defeated or suffers a partial defeat or or Russia gains some kind of strategic victory, even if it's theoric, the chances of normalization don't look good given the signals coming out of Europe. And in fact, we can expect an ongoing simmering enmity between European nations and Russia, probably led by Britain, always the most bellicose of the European nations. If America normalizes those relationships, that relationship under Donald Trump, then Europe will be alone. And if the rest of Europe normalizes that as time goes on, then Britain will be alone. And I think that's actually increasingly likely. Self-immolate after reading. It has been a very bad week for the European Commission and for the Financial Times. On Sunday evening... A report was published in the Financial Times, a leaked secret document. We have a lot of, we get a secret document every other week these days in the press. It's getting a bit embarrassing. But this secret document was apparently leaked to the Financial Times, and the secret document laid out a European Commission plan to wage all out economic war on little country of Hungary. On Sunday evening, when I saw this come through, I said, Good Lord, the Europeans have lost their mind. But In a world where a lot of people seem to be losing their minds, I accepted that they might have indeed lost their minds. It transpired that this was not quite the case. Um, In the coming days, actually the next day, it was leaked on Sunday night, and by about lunchtime on Monday, the European Commission uh, had stated in no uncertain terms that there was no plan. No such plan existed. I've seen reports from people who talk to, from Hungary, who talk to European diplomats basically the next day, and they really, they really seem to think this was not coming from them. One of the authors of the Financial Times piece then conceded that it wasn't a European Commission report. It was a draft report drawn up by some relatively junior person within the commission from one country which went unnamed and this was leaked to the financial times and the financial times said that it was a european plan Uh, so just before getting into what the plan was because that's kind of amusing as well just to kind of gloss on what that means it effectively means that a major newspaper published a fake story that um uh, interfered with a with a, a dip, an ongoing diplomatic relationship between the European Union and Hungary. Um, that's pretty bad. Uh, if something like that turned up on a blog and people bought into it, that's bad enough. Um, from a major newspaper, that's really bad. Now, ultimately, it's probably not had the intended effect. Presumably, the effect was to try and scare Hungary. In fact, it gave Hungary massive leverage over the European Union, who by all accounts were very embarrassed. Uh, Just for context, the SPAT itself is basically nominally over Ukraine funding, and that Hungary don't want the funding for Ukraine, the the aid, foreign aid funding, to be given out of the general European budget, but rather that they set up a, a separate budget, which individual countries pay into voluntarily. And then, you know, when you've paid into the pot, the pot goes to Ukraine. And of course, the the commission don't want that because some countries will opt out. So they want to take it out of the budget. But the reality is, um, in the past, Hungary has caved on these demands if the European Union hand them over funds that they are effectively owed, but are frozen due to, I think it's Hungary's violation of LGBTQ plus rights or something. Uh, 
it's it's several things, but it boils ultimately down to supposed alleged rule of law violations. The European Union is unhappy with the manner in which Hungary appoints its judges. I'm not sure if it's judicial in Hungary. I think I think it really is violations of LGBTQ plus rights, and I think it has to do with, with them banning some sort of sex stuff in children's books. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Um, the point is that the Ukraine funding will probably end up going through, and Hungary will just get its get its golden egg from the goose that promised it, and everybody go home goes home happy. Which raises the further point: What was the point of this entire mess if the end situation was going to be um, was going to be uh, uh, reached anyway? I'll just say very briefly on the plan itself because it's kind of interesting. Um, Hungary is not like other many other economies um, in the in the European economy in that it doesn't have the euro, it has its own currency, the forint. So generally speaking, how you would launch an all-out economic war if you're the European Union is you'd um, do what you did to Greece during the debates over austerity when the Syriza government got, got in um, about nearly 10 years ago now um, and cut off the liquidity. So basically turn off the ATMs. Um, you can't do that to Hungary because it has its own uh, currency. So what the plan apparently was, was to withhold the funds that we're talking about, these funds that they're out from the EU, and then that would crash the currency of the country. And that, that a combination of that, and I guess some bad press or something, would encourage foreign investment to leave or not to go into Hungary. Well, three things about that. First of all, the foreign does not rely on EU funds and anyone who thinks that is economically illiterate, EU funds do not make up a significant amount of the Hungarian economy or current account or anything else. Um, They actually haven't been getting many funds for the past few years. Second of all, the Hungarian economy is relatively balanced right now. After a period of having current account deficits, it now has a current account surplus, according to official figures. So there's no vulnerability. And then the third thing is um, most FDI into Hungary is actually reinvested earnings. It's it's companies that are already set up in, in Hungary reinvesting their earnings into uh, the country. And you're not going to scare through headlines or anything else com- com- companies that have been building up there for years. They know the scene better than any news foreign newspaper is going to tell them. So uh, the reason I'm highlighting this is because, as I pointed out on Twitter very shortly after the report was leaked quote unquote um it was a clown report i'm not i'm not gonna uh, there's no other way to put it it was not written by economists it was not written by competent people um it made no sense it made no sense economically so all of this raises um it raises a lot of questions it definitely raises questions about the current uh system of of a european government because whatever you think about the european union they are usually pretty competent they're pretty rule based they're pretty rule oriented and even when they squeeze the life out of an economy like they did with Greece they never say they're doing it and they always justify it rightly or wrongly with respect to previous laws written now perhaps this was indeed not the european commission as a whole but the fact that these types of leaks are happening shows severe dysfunction i would say in the european project itself it's been very clear for a long time that the European, um, that elites and individual European countries, uh, but more importantly, those uh, kind of civil servants, Eurocrats, as they're sometimes called in Britain, bureaucrats who work within the European system, the kind of the higher leadership of the European Commission, etc., etc., have a real uh, loathing for Fidesz and the, the party that's uh, led by Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary. 
They don't like it. They don't like their policies. They don't like their conservatism. They don't like the way that they use their their the power that EU rules give them to kind of hold up things on a whole variety of issues. And I think for them, really, the straw that's broken the camel's back has been their use of of their veto power within NATO to block uh, Swedish entry until the uh, Turks agreed to it, and more importantly for the European Union to block the allocation of 50 billion euros from the European Union budget to send to Ukraine. Why is that important? Well, one of the things that the European Union is very good at is using crises or using individual uh, events, basically, to accrue more powers for itself from individual states. So a great example of this was during the pandemic, the European Union, uh, the European Commission, and the various organs within the European Union managed to accrue quite significant new powers uh, in the name of efficiency. You know, we'll all buy vaccines together and then we'll allocate them all around the EU. And because we'll be such a big purchasing block, that'll lead to better contracts and we'll get preferential treatment, et cetera, et cetera. But now the EU gets all of these additional new powers. And it, it kind of goes on like that. The same thing happened with regard to the European Union response to the financial crisis. And in fact, many people thought that some of these things might lead to a a full fiscal union within the European Union. The reason that the European Union doesn't want to accept Hungary's plan, I mean, like, if all of these other 28 other European Union countries want to send this money to Ukraine, and Hungary is the only thing that's blocking them, Hungary is quite right to say, well, look, why don't you guys just send that money? I mean, Hungary is not a huge economy. It's not it, It's not like this is Germany doing it. It's like the biggest economy in Europe. Hungary is a relatively small economy. So by Hungary not paying its junk, they're not going to miss out on much. And, and, and maybe countries that are very pro-Ukrainian, pro like, say, Britain, maybe, or, or, or Germany, which is led by a government that's very much in favor of supporting uh, supporting Ukraine, they could just make up the difference and it wouldn't be a really big deal for the Germans to make up the the difference from Hungary. Um, But what they want is they want to make sure that the European Union is now in charge of sending this aid because that's an extra thing. And ultimately, it wants to put its foot down and tell Hungary no. It wants to prove a point here. Hungary, you just can't get your own way. Like Ultimately, we are going to get our own way. That's what it's doing. That's what it's attempting to do. And I would be, therefore, very surprised if they weren't working on a plan for this. Why is that? Well, we've seen on two occasions already that the European Union is willing to use financial and economic means to squeeze member states to hold their feet to the fire and basically, by doing that, bend them to European Union will. The, the first one you mentioned was the during the global financial crisis when the Greeks looked as if they were going to collapse. The European Union, through the Eurogroup of finance ministers, wanted to impose an extremely tough austerity program on Greece. Many people felt that that wouldn't work. The Greeks under Syriza opposed this kind of austerity program and wanted some form of debt relief and haircut built into that so they, so they didn't come out of austerity with a, you know, the 200 and odd percent of GDP debt, which they currently have. Um, the European Union, as you say, basically cut off access to Eurozone liquidity. They cut off access to banks being able to 
cover short-term liquidity needs. And, and, and that caused literal problems with people getting money out of ATMs. The second example is perhaps even worse, and that's when Silvio Berlusconi in 2011 was uh, Prime Minister of Italy and was resisting a European Union and IMF austerity program for Italy. And essentially, the European Central Bank run by Mario Draghi, who would eventually himself go on to become Prime Minister, um, stopped buying, stopped the European Central Bank buying Italian bonds. They had been buying Italian bonds to keep Italian government bond yields down, to keep borrowing uh, affordable, and to show the market that the European Central Bank was going to backstop the Italian economy, which was stressed at the time. Draghi stopped the uh, the ECB. The, 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 he was president of the ECB at the time. He stopped the ECB from buying Italian bonds. He therefore caused the bond market to have something of a miniature heart attack about Italian bonds. The yields of Italian bonds shot up temporarily. There was an almighty panic in Italy that this could lead to economic meltdown, which it really well could have if it had continued. And Berlusconi was removed, and I believe it was Mario Monti who was put in place, who himself had been a European commissioner. It, it, it was almost a kind of a financial um, undercover coup d'etat, essentially, against Italy. So the European Union has it has real history of doing this and, and, and recent history. And I would say for no worse crimes than the sorts that in the eyes of the European Union, uh, Viktor Orban is committing now. So it would shock me if there wasn't some kind of plan to start bending Orban to, to, to their will, especially now that their efforts to combine all the opposition parties last year in a kind of unified front against Orban in the, in the Hungarian national uh, general election last year failed abysmally. Now they've got another four or five years of Orban they, they will seek to find another way to deal with him, especially when he's causing trouble with regard to this. So although this report itself may have been very ill-considered, poorly timed, and hugely embarrassing for the European Union, and certainly now for the Financial Times journalists who put out the story, I would be surprised if there, wasn't, if there weren't plans somewhere in the background to try to hold Orban's feet to the fire or to remove him altogether, to bend Hungary to the European Union's will on a range of issues, but especially on the Ukraine issue. Yeah, I just respond to that quickly with two related points. The reason I disagree on that is because um, the two previous incidents that you mentioned about the Greek and the Italian had two uh, secondary aspects to them. The first is that they could be uh, a direct challenge to the authority of the central bank. Um, and of the, the money and debt creation powers of the central bank, which are governed in their own mind under certain rules, which require, for example, uh, Italy and Greece to impose the austerity. And the reason that they were treated so roughly um, was because there was, uh, there was a sense that they were violating those rules and threatening the authority of this centralized organization. And that speaks to the fact that the EU, whether you like it or loathe it, is actually quite rule-based. Um, the second point is that 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 when something like that happens, the people in charge who are very rule oriented tend to uh, view it as an existential threat. 
And that's where you get to the Hungary thing. The Hungary thing, there are no violations of rules at all, really. Uh, it's uh, Hungary effectively playing political strategy to get what it wants, um, fighting off against the European Commission in a, in a legalistic way where both people are playing by the rules and, frankly, Hungary is winning. Um, I don't think that they could justify undertaking such aggressive actions on Hungary uh, due to this. But the, the meta point is that a lot of people will view it as you view it. Whether I agree with that or not, a lot of people will view it that way. And so ultimately what this has done, it, ha it has been to further degrade the reputation of the European Union. And in future, when people say the European Union is an arbitrary bunch of thugs that use any trick in the book to get every country to subordinate themselves, in the past... Eurocrats or supporters of the European Union would be able to say no. Actually, if you, the, the instances that you're referring to in Italy and in Greece, it was Italy and Greece that weren't following the rules, and we had to be very harsh with them. But ultimately, they weren't following the rules. Next time, the person making that criticism is going to raise this Hungary issue, and it's going to be a lot more difficult to defend against. Because although I actually do personally believe that this was just an entire screw up with a gullible journalist. Who wanted to believe something, um, and another, and possibly whoever wrote this report trying to put pressure on Hungary through some means of their own. Even though I think that probably is what this is, most people aren't going to see it that way. It wasn't reported that way, and most people won't remember it that way. And so the person defending Europe now as a rules-based system rather than a, a press gang um, is going to have a much harder time. This has done damage, I think, quite severe damage to the reputation of the European Union and probably to the newspaper that engaged in this for absolutely no upside. It was such a minor issue. As I said, this wasn't really, although on the face of it, it was about Ukrainian funding. At bottom line, it was more about this ongoing uh, spat between Hungary and, and the European Union, which frankly, to call a spade a spade, is pretty low stakes, not just for the Europeans, but for the Hungarians. Although they want the funds, they don't require them. So it's it's it's... It's all a bit pathetic, really. It's it's like a, a dysfunctional family really falling out and having a huge fight where they start throwing chairs at each other. And it's because, you know, somebody somebody ate the last bowl of soup without asking or something. I mean, it really is kind of low-stakes squabbling. Mm -hmm.